Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your host CJ Walk from Mofka is up next. Good morning and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is CJ Walk, and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. right here on WERU. So for today's show, um, as we get here into April, we're going to be talking today about some spring garden preparations and soil preparations uh, as we get into the to the growing in the soil season here as uh, as we roll into spring and things start to warm up. Hasn't felt quite like that yet, but I think it's right around the horizon, so hopefully talking about it today will uh, we'll stir things up out there. Um, so as we get into this um, soil prep and spring garden work uh, show today, I have one guest with me here in the studio. And my guest here today is Caleb Goosen, and Caleb is Mofka's organic crop and conservation specialist. And um, I'm glad to have him here today on the show. So, Caleb, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, And I'll let listeners know that maybe about 15 minutes into the show, we'll open up the lines for some comments or questions. relevant to the show today, and I'll give out the call-in numbers at that time. Um, And uh, just a little bit of local update, maybe. Mofka, for many years, maybe even a couple decades, has been offering a grow-your-own organic garden program uh, at numerous locations around the state. And uh, the one that was scheduled for this past Wednesday in Ellsworth was canceled because of the weather that we had. And... um, so we are looking to reschedule that, uh, and if you are in the local listening area and one of the 15 or 16 folks that uh, were signed up for that course just this past Wednesday evening, you should be receiving information through uh, the Ellsworth Adult Ed about the rescheduled date and time for that, uh, and we're trying to get that taken care of ASAP. So I just thought I'd put that out there. So... Um, getting back into the show, so today we're going to talk about some spring garden soil prep. Um, Caleb Goosen from Mofka is here today, and I think I'm just going to jump back and let Caleb kind of introduce himself a little bit to the listeners, and uh, I'll ask him a couple questions along the way about his background, but um, I guess, Caleb, you need maybe just introduce yourself by your role at Mofka and, and, and the work that you do for Mofka. Sure. So I started in May uh, as Mofka's new crop specialist. Uh, many listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with Eric Seidman, who's been Mofka's crop specialist for uh, a long time. And he, he hasn't retired yet, but he's headed that direction. He's been phasing back. So as uh, one of our farmers said, I'm the new Eric sidekick. Uh, so my role is uh, to, to help all of our farmers with their uh, 
pest, disease, uh, growing systems in general. Uh, ba basically trying to help them uh, anywhere I can in, in production. Uh, and also as sort of a uh, educational figure for uh, all of Mafka's members. Um, so I often get photos in my email uh, of what's this weed, what's this pest, uh, and I answer what I can, and if I can't answer, I try to direct folks to those who can, or reach out and, and learn it myself as well at the same time. Um, I started last May, so I'm almost uh, here for my, for my one-year anniversary. Mm -hmm. All right. Great. And so prior to Mofka, just to ask you a couple more on the, the background questions, but prior to Mofka, uh, let folks know maybe where you were, where you came from. Yeah, most recently I uh, was at the University of Vermont finishing up grad school. Uh, I did a degree in agronomy, um, and I studied the fatty acid content of forage crops, which, amazingly, I haven't had any questions about since then. <laughs> that's, that's sort of the way of graduate work, is that you, you dive into a, a very specific topic. Uh, but prior to that, I worked at a... Uh, a, a nursery selling trees, shrubs, ornamental crops. Mm -hmm. And prior to that, I worked at an organic vegetable farm for just under 10 years. Uh, and, you know, I've been gardening all along and, and traveling and looking to see how people grow food all around the world whenever I can. Okay. All right. And maybe maybe the last personal question would be just out of curiosity, what what led you to this kind of route working for Mofka and kind of an extension type of role? What what draws you to that work? I guess. Well, I uh, one one thing I love about Mofka, my my role at Mofka is that uh, I get to be a generalist. I get questions that run the gamut from why aren't we growing juniper berries to make our own gin here, to uh, grain to hops to vegetable crops and so I don't always know the answer to all of those because they can be pretty diverse but uh, mm -hmm. it gives me the opportunity uh, to to look into a lot of interesting things um, and uh, I basically always wanted to go into an extension type position and one of the great things about doing that for Mafka is that I get to preach what I practice. So instead of just being an organic farmer, I get to promote organic farming. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it is a nice bit of, it's a nice pairing for me. It's kind of, kind of what I went to grad school to become, but didn't realize that it was an option in quite this capacity. Okay. All right. So you get to be the generalist and maybe not worry too much about the fatty acid contents of forages. Right. You get to broaden the, uh, the horizons a little bit. There. Although that's why I'm still an advocate of grass-fed uh, <laughs> livestock. Okay. All right. That sounds like we can get you back for another show on <laughs> grazing. Um, so as we talk today uh, with Caleb <clears throat> and get into kind of the soil, soil prep, garden prep, even at the farm scale... Um, I guess I'd just start by we're rolling into April, things are thawing out. Um, people may be anxious to get back into the garden, back into the soil, back into the dirt type of thing. And so I guess the first question I'd throw out there is kind of the timing of when is it actually right to kind of get back out there uh, in that in that garden situation and and the timings may vary, but uh, yeah, the timings may vary is the key phrase there. Um, 
as I, I was telling you the story earlier today, how I last week I went to go get some work done on my car, and my mechanic said, "What? Why don't we switch your tires over while we're at it? I think we're in the clear." And if anybody in the area was paying attention on Wednesday, we had quite a bit of a snowstorm that I was trying to drive through in summer tires, and that's kind of where, if you're not careful, you can get yourself into with your garden prep too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's. I think farmers and gardeners are eternally optimistic. That's why we keep trying to grow vegetables every year. And um, even if you have a rough year, you, you just, you know, n- next year you're going to do it better. And uh, that also means we get excited in the springtime and sometimes we, we jump the gun a little bit. Uh, but sometimes that also pays off in big dividends if you can get your soil prepped early. So I have a friend who farms down in Pennsylvania and I'm looking at photos on her Instagram feed and she's already prepped her soil and she's got her soil amendments in, but it's a lot warmer down there. Um, There are some folks up here that are able to get some things going, but that's also why a lot of folks have been moving into high tunnel production to kind of get season extension. Mm -hmm. If if you have a greenhouse up and going, even if you're not heating it, uh, you're probably already harvesting greens, radishes, maybe a head of lettuce if you're really early mm-hmm. uh, or if you have a little supplemental heat. Um, but most folks aren't planting out into the soil yet, and for good reason. It's just too cold. Mm-hmm. And part of that is it's too cold for the plants, but a lot of it is also it's too cold for the soil life. Mm-hmm. And so if your bacteria isn't active, then they're not mobilizing the nutrients that you need to get out of your soil. Mm-hmm. And... Um, also, the first the, the bacteria that are more protective of your crop are not active to kind of protect your crop against some of the bacteria, fungus that are disease agents and might cause damping off. So rushing out to plant early, you might be you, you might get plants that do actually make it, but then they're also a little stressed. They're probably not growing real fast. Uh, yeah, the the rate at which plants grow, it's kind of a, a, a mix of both the sun that they're getting and the temperature. And right now we don't have much temperature and the sunlight is increasing, but we're not at those big, long summer days yet. So you're kind of, you, it, yeah, to save yourself disappointment, you might want to just wait a little bit unless yeah. you have some systems in place that, that give you some more leeway to go and, and push that season extension a little bit. So like a little bit of... Uh buffer on either side or a little bit of insurance against against a weather <clears throat> a weather challenge yeah and and that's true in a couple ways one of the, the reasons i just outlined but also even if everything goes right sometimes you get a, a you, you know maybe you have black plastic mulch to heat the soil a little bit you might have hoops and row cover to heat the air around the plant protect from frost mm-hmm. And then we might get that killer frost coming back later in the spring. And you've got this big plant that is a little harder to cover, a little harder to protect. So it's, uh, sometimes it's worth, to, worth it to take a little risk because when it works out, it works out great. Yeah. But uh, just go into it with your eyes open yeah. and uh, know the risks. Okay. Well, I know that getting into April, there's usually... Um, the old adage of sorts, I guess, is having, <clears throat> at least around here, having your peas in the ground by the Patriots Day holiday, which is coming up shortly. Um, 
and maybe that's a kind of a calendar guide, but really, as you just explained in terms of the soil and the microbial populations being ready, um, the temperature of the soil plays a pretty huge, huge piece in all that as well, right? Right. And, and you get a little more leeway with something like a pea, where mm. it's very cold hardy. Yeah. Uh, so your cold hardy crop, crops are better adapted. They've, they've evolved to, to be a little better at cold soil, but of course they still need something. They need some warmth <laughs> in there. Um, yeah, I don't know the the Patriots Day reference, but because of course in Vermont it's not really celebrated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but uh, my my grandmother used to get her peas in as early as late March sometimes. But mm-hmm. again, that's you're probably doing succession planting, and your first planting, if it makes it great, if it doesn't, well, you know you have another succession that you're going to seed later, mm-hmm. and. Sometimes when we do many succession plantings, you find that uh, they all are about harvestable at about the same time anyway, mm-hmm. uh, because the ones that are planted later just are better able to establish. They are able to do a bigger root system, get into the soil deeper, where if the warmth has crept down into the lower layers, they can make a bigger root system and, and support more top growth. Whereas if you put it in or too early, it can just sit and then sit and sit, and by the time it's ready to go, your next planting is already there at the same time anyway. Yeah, that's something I've noticed myself is those succession plantings, usually the first and the second are just about at the same place. So (laughs) yeah, maybe maybe wait for the second planting and plant twice as much, who knows. Right. (laughs) Or, or, uh, you know, if you do have many successions staged for a, a short crop like arugula, mm-hmm. where you can seed regularly, um, you just know that the days between your plantings can are that number is not static. It's going to shift throughout the year. So in the spring, you don't need uh, you you can wait a lot longer to do your second seeding and maybe your third seeding, but then as the summer approaches and it's warmer and there's more sun, longer days, uh, you can shorten that interval and. And you'll you'll be moving through those successions faster. Mm-hmm. So those crops will be growing and maturing and harvestable at sooner, yeah, sooner intervals. Plus, you'll have to when we get into the summer heat, then you worry about them bolting. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to get them get the next one coming up before that happens. Okay, so um, in terms of timing, is there kind of a temperature range maybe of the soil? I know you can buy a soil thermometer and get an idea. Yeah, so that's a, a good a good way to start thinking about it. Um, and again, some of that's going to vary by crop. Uh, mm-hmm. So the colder crops, some of them can take soil temperatures in the high 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the warm season crops, you know, it's got to be at least in the 60s. Um, yeah. Something like corn, uh, some of the new varieties can be pushed a little bit in the field corn, the, the more agronomic side of things. But for sweet corn, you really don't want to get it into the ground until that soil's warm. Otherwise, it's just not going to thrive. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a warm season plant. It actually has evolved a completely different type of photosynthesis that uh, only does good in hot, dry weather or hot, humid weather. Okay. And then there's also, in that cool soil, the chance of seeds just rotting and not germinating as well. That's right. right? Uh, and some of that's water, but some of it is just that the what life you're favoring. Mm-hmm. So one way 
one thing that's often important why folks like to plant in raised beds or make hills or mounds is that you get the soil that the seed is first going to get into contact with raised up above the surrounding surface so the soil stays a little drier. Mm-hmm. It warms up a bit more because there's that warm air that can infiltrate the soil a bit. Um, and also wet soil it takes longer to, dry, to warm up. Mm-hmm. So it's that thermal mass of the water in there keeps it colder longer. Um, and then by the time it's summer, the roots have gone down into the, the lower layers of the soil anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one, one big thing that helps in terms of just getting the soil warm enough for good growth, but also to protect against disease. Yeah. Um, another thing some folks like to do is, uh, there's some products of like a trichoderma, Oh, I may be I may be flubbing the name, but there's some beneficial fungus that uh, will actually infect your crop's roots, and that'll give the crop some, but infect in a good way. In a good way, yeah. <laughs> it'll uh, it'll have a symbiotic relationship, and uh, it protects the the plant from some of the damping off pathogens, the mm-hmm. the fungus and bacteria that uh, want to eat the crop. <laughs> yeah, and take it down yep. before <clears throat> excuse me, before you can. All right. Well, um, I'll take a second just to remind listeners, this is Common Ground Radio. Uh, my guest today is Caleb Goosen, MOFCA's Organic Crop and Conservation Specialist. Uh, and today we're talking about some, some spring garden work, soil prep, um, and getting ready for the, uh, the months ahead. So I think at this point, though, we will be able to open up the phone lines. And if anyone has a comment or question about their spring garden work, uh, you can call in the n- number at uh, 1-866-625-9378, and that's 625-9378, and we'd be happy to take any um, questions or comments. So I guess the next the next step we'll roll into is that, okay, if you're going to be getting ready to work the soil, where do we fall on the, the actual preparation of the soil? And thinking about tillage, um, maybe it's you know it's going to vary with your scale, I'm sure. But if we were to think a uh, start on the small scale garden situation, maybe what are the what are some methods or some steps you might be looking at to get ready for spring? And that's a big. It depends. Yeah. Uh, there's about as many different gardening styles and approaches as there are gardeners. Um, some folks, when as soon as the soil is dry enough to work uh, and a good test for that is it depends a little bit on your soil type but if you pick up the soil make a a sort of a snowball except out of soil a soil ball in your hands and then press your finger into the middle of it if it breaks apart into fairly clean halves that means it's not too too wet Mm -hmm. Um, or if it starts to crumble that then and just kind of breaks apart into uh, more of a, a dusty soil, then you're definitely in the dry zone. Uh, and I heard there's a red flag warning down south, so I know down there it's probably pretty dry. I imagine yeah. people are starting, the farmers are probably starting to get into their fields a little bit. Yeah, surface dry, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, you don't want to get uh, heavy uh, machinery or equipment onto the field when it's wet because you're going to start compacting the soil. It's, a, it's really easy to compact soil when it's wet. It's a lot safer to get weight out there um, when it's dry, and that includes even yourself, even your own footprints. Mm-hmm. And if you think about a freshly tilled garden, of course your footprints sink nice and low down in there. Yes. So uh, 
for prep, it, it's gonna it's gonna vary a lot. Um, some folks have permanent raised beds, and so that's really just means you're gonna have to take off whatever you have on the top. Hopefully, you have some some organic matter protecting the soil. Mm-hmm. Maybe you pull that off, you let it warm up, and you're about ready to go. Uh, sort of a modified version of that. Some people do raised beds that don't have any walls uh, that are in a, a normal garden plot and they're doing tarp tillage where they actually have a like a silage tarp a polyethylene tarp yeah. and they put that there temporarily for or over winter um, and uh, I've seen some photos already this spring of people pulling back their tarps and their soil looks it, it's the tarp has kept water off so mm-hmm. the soil is pretty dry and it's also prevented that water from leaching nutrients out so their soil's just about ready to go. They might apply some amendments and throw some transplants in or direct seed, uh, of course, with cold, hardy crops. So they're getting close. Well, we do have a caller. So okay. let's look to, uh, we have Catherine from Appleton on the line. If you'd like to go ahead with your comment or question, Catherine. I would. I, it's a question. Well, actually, there are two questions. So I would like you to talk about the UV light on plants because in the last few years it's been very very strong as it is now and i've not noticed a lot of burning on my my leaves and the other thing is really given the amount of sun we do get here in maine which seems to be less and less um <clears throat> because of certain things that are being put up in the sky and everybody's always uncomfortable about talking about what's going on up in the sky but whatever we seem to have less sunlight and so how much really sun and light um, is needed for the plant's growth, um, the percentage. And please talk about the UV light. So I'll, I'll just listen now. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for your call, Catherine. We'll, we'll look at that right now. Um, Caleb, do you want to touch on maybe the U, U ultraviolet light effect on plants' leaves? Sure. Um... I don't know that it's the UV part of the spectrum that's causing burning on a leaf so much as it's uh, just intensity of light and the the entire spectrum, uh, the visible spectrum as well. Uh, plants have evolved to be out in the, the full direct sun, well, depending on the species, of course, um, without any sunblock. Mm-hmm. They, they have their own pigments in their leaves that uh, protect them from uh, some of the, the different aspects of... That, that wavelength, those spectrums, the UV and all that. Um, so they don't get sunburn for that reason necessarily. What usually causes sunburn of plants early in the spring, it's usually when transplants go from somewhere protected and go out into the harsh environment. So if you have transplants started in a greenhouse, uh, in your side of your house with grow lights, or even out in the field but with a, a row cover protecting them, there's two different things that are happening. One is that the uh, light intensity they've been growing in up to that point has been lower just in general than what the actual sun provides on a clear sunny day. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that they haven't been exposed to blowing air. And that's actually one of the main things. So so the process of dampen, uh, sorry, hardening off your transplants, you want to expose them to more of those full, harsh uh, outdoor conditions bit by bit so that they get that direct sun, uh, they get that wind blowing across them. But when they first come out, you only want to expose them to it a little bit and then shelter them a little bit more or maybe dappled sun and and somewhat protected from the harshest breezes. Uh, But if you go out too quickly, um, 
you can get the plant will dehydrate uh, because it doesn't have a waxy cuticle, which is the outer layer of the leaf that protects it from, holds the moisture in. Mm -hmm. um, and then combine that with a bright sunshine and you might get, uh, you might get uh, photo oxidative stress is the, the full term, but it's, it's really just so much sun that the plant's photosynthesis systems are going haywire. They're, it's, it's way too much sun for the plant to handle. It needs to produce more pigment, mm -hmm. uh, just like we produce a tan, yeah. uh, to, or many of us tan when we go out into the, the summer some sun. Us. Yeah, some of us. <laughs> Okay, so maybe is the is the light stress or the light stress? I guess what would the burn? What would that look like so on the leaf? It 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 looks like just a sort of it can it depends on the the plant species, and it depends on the conditions. But it often looks like a white spot, okay. uh, where the that part of the leaf has just bleached out. Yeah. Um, and uh, then, of course, depending on how long that ago that happened, that starts to get necrotic. It starts to decay, and mm -hmm. and so it might look brown. It might start. Yeah. It might, and that might allow pathogens and disease to take a little bit of a hold. So it might be a real problem, or it might just be snap that leaf off, and and the new growth will be coming out and used to the the harsh environment and be fine. Yeah. Um, there are some other things that can look like that, um, and that's. Uh, sometimes if you have compost or manure that isn't well-aged, it can be producing ammonia, and you actually get ammonia toxicity, mm -hmm. and that can form similar-looking lesions. Um, if you have really salty compost uh, or you're just too close to the road and get road salt, yeah. that that road salt also has that it, – it all becomes about water potential in the plant. And um, if there's – a lot of sun, a lot of wind, that's pulling a lot of water out of the leaves. If there's a lot of salt in the soil, that's making it harder for the plant to take up water. Okay. So those are just a few things that can kind of add to it. Okay. Well, we do have another caller. So I want to make sure we wrapped up on, on the first caller's um, questions there. But we do have John from Camden on the line. John, if you'd like to go, and thanks for holding on for a minute. Sure, sure. Thanks. Yeah, I have a question. Uh, last year, I have raised beds, by the way. I've raised beds that are about five by eight. I have three of them. And last year, I had a problem. I lost most of my cucumber and squashes due to what I, the Internet told me was a grub. And then I also had a thing on my tomatoes that was fairly common. The leaves fell off, but the fruit still grew. Again, something from the ground. Can I assume that because I didn't cover my beds at all, that basically my soil froze solid because it was above ground and that possibly would have killed those spores? Or do I need to replace the soil? Thanks. Okay. Thanks, John. We'll, we'll dive right into that one now. Yeah. So that's tricky. Um, I wouldn't say replace the soil. Uh, but I also wouldn't say that you're in the clear. Um, for the squash, if you're saying a grub, that makes me think it could be a squash vine borer if it was in the vine itself. Um, I don't know if John's still on the line, if he can speak no, to that. No. Okay. Uh, but uh, there's a squash vine borer, and that's a moth, and those fly up from the south every year. And so by the time they get up here and lay their eggs on the plant and the plant, the egg hatches and this little grubby larva gets into your vine and chews its way through and that can kill squash pretty easily. Um, 
it, it doesn't really matter. They don't overwinter here. They're going to come up from the south anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, with climate change, they might start overwintering. Uh, with the tomato, that sounds... Uh, the symptoms that John described sounded a lot like early blight or one of the similar diseases. There's, there's a few diseases that um, often overwinter on de crop debris. So they've infected a tomato leaf in the past. That little bit of tomato leaf, even if it's broken apart into a tiny little thing that just looks like another bit of soil, the, the bacteria or fungus is in there. And then the next year, if you plant tomatoes nearby, the spores will get splashed back up on the tomatoes from the rain, mm -hmm. hitting those bits in the soil. And then the first lower leaves get infected and you get spots or different lesions, depending on which, which disease it is exactly. Um, and then that progresses all the way up the plant. Uh, so both of these questions kind of speak to the importance of identifying your disease or pest presence, because what you do uh, really very uh, it, it really dictates how how much you have to respond to it. Um, with the disease, the tomato disease, it's hard in a garden to rotate away from disease. But I definitely wouldn't plant tomatoes directly in the same spot. Mm -hmm. I would try to move them somewhere else. The other thing I would try to do is mulch the soil around them so that if there is disease-containing disease debris in the, that top layer of soil, then you cover it with mulch, and that really reduces the spread of that disease the next year. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not always 100%, but it is usually enough to keep the plant going a lot longer and uh, get a lot better yields. So that's really the mulch covering any of that spore material that might be ready to splash yeah, up because in the next rain. You can't really get rid of it all unless you did actually replace your entire garden bed soil, but you yeah. don't want to do that on an annual basis. <laughs> um, so you you just cover it and and uh, hold it back down, and and it works pretty well usually with a good thick layer of straw. Mm -hmm. So some rotation, some mulching, mm -hmm. different different techniques to um, to keep any of the pests at bay. Um, okay. Well, I think before we got into some caller questions, and we may have another one coming up right now, but okay, it looks like we have Catherine from Appleton coming back on the line. Catherine, yes, is there a, a follow-up? I did. No, well, it's not really a follow-up. I did ask another question, and the other question was sun and light, bright light. Because back back in 2009, I had one of the most successful gardens I've ever had, and I think I might have gotten it in a little early because it was okay to do that and certain things with my peas and what have you. But there were three weeks of, oh, my gosh, we just had no sun, but we had very bright light. And we did have rain. And I, I have a video of myself sitting there just amazed at how beautiful and productive everything was. So I really want to know about brightness of light and actual sun and just what the plants really need to, um, you know, as a percentage of both. Um, I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but I think you kind of know where I'm going with this. So yeah. I'll listen to the expert. I'm going to hang up. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, we'll get into um, the light and the intensity and if what light is maybe penetrating through cloud cover. Um, 
2009 may have been the year that was quite rainy and there was a good amount of a late blight breakout in that year, but I'm not going to not going to quote myself on that one, but um so it seems like the question was prolonged periods of cloudy weather and whether that is beneficial, harmful, and what effect may that have on the plants itself in terms of light access. So it is it is a good topic because um, one of the things that home gardeners I find run into as a problem the most is trying to get plants in where they don't have enough light, uh, you know, in a backyard where there's trees on either side, and so they only really get a few hours in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. Um with most crops, I mean, in New England in general, we do get some periods of a lot of clouds. Uh, whether that's thick clouds that block a lot of light or whether that's just overcast and there's still a good amount of light infiltration, mm-hmm. that makes a big difference. Um, as, as uh, again, to the, the sun tanning topic, as a lot, a lot of us know, not all of us, but um, if you're out in, in overcast uh, days, you can still get a heck of a sunburn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's UV, but it's also visible light coming through uh, those those cloud layers. And so on a full day with bright, bright sun, your plants out in the field actually, uh, they get more light than they can use. Mm-hmm. So it's not usually a problem. They have a lot of mechanisms for dealing with it, but uh, it is... If you were just sort of calculating how many, how much energy is landing on that square foot of ground and then how much energy the plant is actually able to utilize to grow, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not fully efficient by uh, any means, um, which means that with an overcast day, you do actually get a lot of the light you need. Uh, touching back on the UV, one nice thing about those clear days when you do have a lot of UV is that actually sterilizes the surface of the plant sometimes. It'll mm-hmm. kill fungal spores, bacterial spores. Um, and so that it can be good for that reason. So a lot of damp weather with a lot of clouds, you may have more disease issues mm-hmm. um, starting because things don't dry off as well. Mm-hmm. You don't have that. And that just allows uh, disease to proliferate a bit. But in general, if you don't have something giving you full shade, like a shadow, then you're usually going to be okay. Okay. Uh, So for for folks who are maybe setting up their first garden, it is really good, especially now. Now's the time to do it. Look at the sunrise, see where the shadow is falling. Mm -hmm. Look at the sunset, see where the shadow is falling. Try to look at that spot throughout the day. How many hours of light are you really getting? Mm -hmm. Of course, later in the summer, we'll get more and more and more as the sun goes higher in the sky. Mm-hmm. But uh, it it can be you, – you can get a great crop in cloudy weather. Uh, the Pacific Northwest, known for being very cloudy, a lot of uh, horticultural crops and seed crops come out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sometimes, if it's a dry year, uh, that cloud cover can be crucial because mm-hmm. if your soil's dry and you get really sunny times, that's when plants, even established plants, can get sunburn. Or they're, and if even if they don't show that visible symptom of stress, they're still stressed. Yeah. Um, so that that water stress is reducing their potential. Okay. So if there is a period, I guess would the the benefits be? And I'm just going to kind of make an assumption here based off of the caller's information that there was. A th- maybe a three-week period. Maybe it was in June. 
we get a three-week period, cloudy, maybe a little bit of rain. Is there a benefit to maybe the establishment of some of those earlier plants? I would think if you're getting into June and all of your hot season crops, transplants are going in, would that weather type to, uh, help them kind of adjust, I guess, from the transplanting process rather than full-on sun and dry wind? Yeah. So when, when you're um, putting transplants out, uh, it, they, they undergo a lot of stresses. And um, so if you think of a, a, a transplant and it's in a little cell, of its roots are in this little soil block or cell of soil or however you're doing your transplants, uh, that's really the only amount, volume of water that they're able to collect. And so until their roots get out into the broader soil and get established, um, they are meeting all of this pull of water from the top part of the plant. And a sunny day, a windy day is going to exasperate that uh, with just whatever water is hitting that soil ball. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those, those first, that first week or so of establishment, cloudy weather is ideal. Um, and that's also true for larger plants, shrubs, trees. It's really nice to, to sort of baby them a little bit. If, yeah. if I wouldn't, I wouldn't delay planting until late into the summer because you just kept waiting for that forecast of rainy weather. Yeah. Uh, but it does kind of let you know how much you have to keep an eye on irrigating to make sure or watering, hand watering to make sure that your, your seedlings or your, your new plants get established. Um, with those warm season crops, uh, again, part of this is going to depend on temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they can take cloudy as long as it's warm enough, but cloudy and cold and wet, they're going to sit and they're going to be unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, that's, that's how they've evolved. They've evolved for warm weather. Okay. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's remind listeners, this is Common Ground Radio. We're talking about spring garden prep and some kind of early season uh, gardening, uh, crop growing challenges and successes, I guess, as well. And we are taking any questions or calls, and the number to call in is one 625 9378 And my guest today is Caleb Goosen uh, from Mofka. So I, wanted, I was going to jump back a little bit. We've kind of gone down some different roads just based off of the phone calls, but... Um, before the first call, we were getting into a bit of that kind of to till or not to till kind of question. Um, so I was wondering maybe if you wanted to speak just a couple ideas. We hear a lot about no-till agriculture, um, but know that we got to get in that soil somehow to make things happen. So maybe a little a little bit on the tillage side of things. Yeah, so I am sort of a tillage agnostic uh, I, I see the benefits to tilling. I see the benefits to no-till systems. Uh, honestly, my favorite approach would be don't be too dogmatic and do what you need to do at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the benefits of, of plowing, uh, tilling, breaking into the soil, uh, double digging if you're really into the labor-intensive methods, um, is that you, you get a lot of air into your soil. You warm it up because you get that air in there. And then you're also stimulating bacterial growth, and the, which is breaking down some of your organic matter, and that frees up some nutrients. It gets the soil life going. Uh, with no-till, if you have an established setup and you've got a good soil health already, uh, it, sometimes it takes a little bit longer for the soil to warm up and drain. But if you've 
been doing it for long enough, you've hopefully got an, and, and that's one of the, the key distinctions is that no-till works best after it's been done for several years. So if folks okay. jump right into it, they can't necessarily see great successes, but they might. Um, and and uh, so you're, you're hoping that you've established really good soil health, uh, which is good drainage and good biological activity that's going to help your plants grow. And uh, there aren't too many problems with it out west towards uh, the Great Lakes. There are some issues that we're finding with sort of larger ag settings where they've been no-tilling for years, um, and that uses herbicide to to kind of kill crops and weeds, and that's sort of a different system than we would talk about in a garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they have a lot of residue of fertilizer and crop residue and manure that has been surface applied and not tilled in, and when they have big rain events, a lot of that top layer can run off on as surface erosion and that's been possibly there's still debate but there it's possibly contributing to nutrient runoff into the lakes and causing some some pollution issues okay um well we do have another caller so we're going to jump to pepin that's over in bar harbor if you'd like to go ahead with your your comment or question uh thanks for taking my call um i'm a student at college of the atlantic and i was interested if you could talk a little bit about Seed saving, I've been hearing a lot more about that around the whole state. Um, I'm personally interested in homesteading um, and trying to be as sustainable and self-sustaining as possible, um, and seed saving would definitely be a part of that. Okay, Pep, and we'll, we'll, we'll put that on the list, and we'll get into seed saving in just a second. Does that sound good to you? Thank you. All yep. right, thanks for your call. Um. All right, I'm going to put that just on the next burner, so to speak, if we can just maybe wrap up the, the tillage piece. Um, so the no-till situations seem to be best when they're established for a few years and you have good soil situations. But at other times, tillage is necessary to get in there and maybe get things started, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, it, it would be difficult to go to a, uh, a field that's been laying fallow for several years and throw in a garden that was no-till. Yeah. Because uh, you'd have a thick sod, and yeah. it, it would just be really hard to get into it. So that first year, most folks, even if they are going no-till, they till that first year. They they plow it or some other way to incorporate the sod. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I think that's that's a good general overall. Okay. Okay. Um, well, let's jump to the question we just had then. Sure. You want to talk a little bit um, about seed saving? I mean, that seems maybe we're saving the seeds from last year to plant here coming up in the next, well, maybe we already are, but coming up in the next few weeks. Um, so you want to speak a little bit about sure. maybe seed saving in general? Yeah, and I'll, I'll give a, a sort of, too late endorsement of Mofka's Seed and Scion Swap weekend, uh, which just occurred. It was the last weekend in March, um, where folks swap seeds that they have saved uh, mm-hmm. and scion wood for orchard crops. Uh, so seed saving is great. Uh, it's fun. It's a lot of fun, I find, personally. Yeah. Uh, there are a few caveats. Uh, if you save a hybrid variety, you are not guaranteed to get uh, your next crop looking anything like what you saved the seed from. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because hybrids are formed from two uh, line-bred parent lines, which means that the the mother plant and the father plant were both 
fairly dissimilar, and they were also um, fairly uniform in their genetics. And so then the mother plant is pollinated by the father plant, uh, usually with a person doing doing the work in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gives you an F1 hybrid, and you'll see that in seed catalogs. Yeah. Um, and those hybrids are often chosen uh, because with that uniform genetics of the two parent lines, you get very uh, reliable performance and very uniform uh, performance of that variety. But then if you save that seed, it has bred with itself, typically, mm-hmm. um, and uh, your the genetics start sorting back out. And you get kind of a mishmash of everything from what the original mother line was and the f- original father line was and every combination of the two. Yeah. Uh, no longer a uniform combination. Um, another big thing to keep an eye on with seed saving is you have to know your plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to look into each vari- each crop, uh, each species, because some plants are real outcrossers, meaning that they don't want to pollinate with their own variety. They want to pollinate with another variety. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are true inbreeding, in like peas and beans. Oftentimes, the, the flower has pollinated itself before it's even open. Uh, there is still some outcrossing that bees can get some pollen from other plants and mix it in. But for the most part, uh, you will see that they come true to type unless they're a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Um, and true to type is, is just a phrase meaning that the seeds you save are going to produce a crop that looks a lot like what crop you saved them from. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the big caveat is just really know that your species know your uh, variety, is it a hybrid or not, and then have fun. Uh, there's two books that I'd really recommend strongly for someone who's interested in looking into it. Okay. The first book is called Seed to Seed, and it's sort of a, it goes plant family by plant family, and you look up, okay, I want to I wanna save beet seed, and it tells you everything you need to know. Uh, how far apart your varieties have to be to keep them from cross pollinating, which is very far because beets are often wind pollinated. Um, Another quirk of beets, just because we've got this example going, uh, you can't just save one beet. It is a biennial, so it it only flowers in the second year. You can't just save one beet. You have to save a few because beets are actually gendered (laughs) in that you will have a male plant or a female plant. So you need both. Um, And... uh, yeah, so saving beet seed is a little complicated. You yeah. have to keep the beets going. You have to grow your beet the first year, overwinter it, let it grow again, make sure it pollinates with another beet plant, mm-hmm. and then save the seed. Uh, and then if you had multiple varieties at the same time, you'd have to keep them very far apart so that they wouldn't cross-pollinate, unless you were trying to get them to cross-pollinate, which can be all sorts of fun in itself. Yeah. And, and then you see what you get next. And before we move on, i I got to say book. the second book. It's uh, called Breed Your Own Vegetable Varieties, and it's by Carol Depp, D-E-P-P-E. And I think Seed to Seed is by Suzanne Ashworth. I'm going to just double-check that right now. So Breed Your Own Vegetable Varieties. Yep. And Seed to Seed. Yeah, and that's by Suzanne Ashworth, and the other one is Carol Depp. Okay. All right. Um, Well, we do have Catherine back on the line. Catherine, would you like to go ahead if we didn't get to the light question? Okay. Um, Yes, let's talk about cover crops for the spring because it's a little too late for the fall ones. 
um, because that's really, really important. Okay. So thank you. Okay. Well, we can can move into the cover cropping. Sure. Uh, Yeah, and actually, if you can get into your soil, whether tilled or no-tilled, now's a great time to throw in a spring cover crop. Uh, Mm -hmm. These are often very... You want to choose a variety that's cold hardy. Yeah. and often the small cereal grains, depending on uh, how you're going to incorporate the cover crop later, how you're going to terminate it, kill it, and mm-hmm. then either till it back into the soil or just knock it down so that it becomes a surface mulch. Yep. Uh, so wheat, barley, all of the spring cereal grains are, are pretty cold hardy. Uh, peas and oats is a, is a very classic um, cover crop mix. And sometimes, you know, keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Go with the, the old standbys. Um, uh, some other things you can do that some folks don't do as much, but they're a little easier to kill. Uh, so for a home gardening situation where you maybe aren't going to be able to mow and rototill or plow and, and get a, a wheat down so that it doesn't start becoming your next weed, yes, um, you might want to grow something called tillage radish or uh, the several brassica cover crops. And there's lots out there, um, forage, radish, uh, mustards. Um, and those, they, they are cold hardy. They spring up. They cover your soil. They, they provide some new organic matter growth. Mm-hmm. Um, tillage radish can form a nice deep taproot, and that'll help break up your soil uh, in the lower levels. Tillage radish is also a great fall cover crop, but you don't want to grow it in the summer because once those long days come about, it tells it triggers the plant to flower, to bolt, yeah. and you, it'll stop growing that taproot that you're actually looking for. Um, those are the ones that I would stick with in the spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, spring cereals, peas as well, peas and oats, um, and uh, some of the brassicas. That's yep. probably... I, I'd keep it simple. Keep it in the <laughs> Do one of those or a mix if you want. Some folks like to really mix it up. Yeah. And I notice that we think at the end of the year when we get into the fall, oftentimes the winter rye crop is is used a lot. And I know that, you know, a gardener can have quite some trouble working in overwintered winter rye in the spring once it's really established. So Yeah. So winter rye is the, the old standby uh, cover crop for fall planting and then holds your soil, it stays alive. Now's about the time if you look out at it, it's probably greening up. Mm-hmm. It's maybe tillering a little more, uh, which means that the individual plant that sprouted from the seed is sending out daughter plants and it's spreading out a bit. Um, and before you know it, it's going to jump. Yep. It's going to elongate. And um, and then before you know it, you're going to have a field of grain and where you <laughs> wanted to plant your vegetables. So... Uh, on the garden scale, there's a couple different ways people approach it. You can mow it, uh, mm-hmm. and then if if you have a way to incorporate both what's below the level of the mower, the, the plant and the roots, you can incorporate it. Um, deeper is better, or multiple passes so that you're really breaking things up. Yeah. Uh, or maybe you do one pass, give it a few days, do another pass as it's after it's resprouted because. Uh, it can be tenacious. That's why it's such a good cover crop is yeah. that it, it's hardy. It likes to live. Um, another way some folks will approach it if they have a later season crop that they're going to put in that that plot or that garden bed, 
uh, you know, it, that's where they're going to put their fall brassicas or their fall whatever. Mm-hmm. And so they will let the rye get up really tall, actually, and start to bloom. And um, once the rye is dropping pollen, and you can Google, you know, rye pollen drop. It's called anthesis uh, is, the, is the technical term. But uh, once the rye has started to drop pollen, it the seed won't be... Ma- mature, it won't be viable, so you don't risk replanting rye as your next weed. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you knock the rye down or really crimp the stem or really just mangle that that above-ground portion, uh, you can kill it, and it won't re-sprout from the roots. Everything from now up until it drops that pollen, the plant is going to do its best to re-sprout, send out new shoots, and and regrow. Uh, another thing that folks are doing, and th- this harkens back to the, the idea of tarp tillage, uh, some folks are knocking down their rye crop or, or mowing it, somehow getting it low enough, and then putting on a big polyethylene tarp, uh, something to really block the light and not let anything creep up through the hole, any cracks or holes or, or joints. Uh-huh. And um, putting on for at least two weeks, maybe closer to three, four, and... Usually that deprives the plant of light for long enough that it kills it. And then you kind of have a surface mulch that you can work work into. But then again, that's a lot of carbon on the surface. And uh, if you didn't try to incorporate that, that would be a lot of carbon that you were putting into your soil. And that can lock up nitrogen. But that's a a whole nother. That's another show. Yeah. Okay. And maybe what is it at the. So if you let that rye get up to where it's shedding the pollen and you were able to you know the crimper rollers that are on a farm scale if you're able to knock that down uh what's happening that it would actually kill the plant in that process yeah essentially if you think about plants and more so annual crops like winter rye really is a winter annual it, mm-hmm. it, it only grows for one year it just happens to do that starting in the fall and ending in the spring um its main goal is to reproduce. And so by the time it's dropped the pollen, it is like, well, I've done the the majority. I've at least done my my bare necessity. (laughs) I have, uh, I've gotten my, my genes out there and um, hopefully created some viable seed. Uh, If you waited for it to go all the way to produce seed, it would also die. Um, So it's just, that it, it's done its job. It's an annual crop. It has its genetics tell it, reproduce, and then you're done. Put all your energy into creating some sort of seed. Okay. All right. Well, that's good to know. That's good to know. I've heard some people trying to till it and till it, and it keeps coming back in, in their garden, or maybe they're working the soil with hand tools, so it could be a bit of a challenge. Um, yeah. The recipe for disaster there <laughs> would be um, try to mow it, till it once, and then wonder why it's regrowing in a week. Yeah, uh, you, you really gotta keep an eye on it, and and you know don't be afraid to dig around in your soil, look, and you'll see the shoot, you'll see it reshooting, and that's when you know, okay, it's put a little energy into that reshoot. Time to knock it back again, mm-hmm. and so that's sort of a, a tedious, time-intensive way to do it. It's it's easier. That's why on the farm scale, it usually gets moldboard plowed and just turned under, and, yeah. and it's a lot harder for it to recover from that. From that. From that action. But essentially, the energy, putting the energy into those new shoots, trying to regrow, you stir it up one more time, eventually it's just going to run out of yeah, energy. Yeah, it down. runs out of gas. It runs out of gas, so to speak. Um, 
Okay, well, we are getting down into the final couple minutes here. Um, I think uh, my guest today has been Caleb Goosen, who is Mofka's crop and conservation specialist. Or is it conservation and crop specialist? Crop and conservation. (laughs) Crop and conservation specialist. And we've been talking about some spring garden prep, soil prep, um, and even getting into some kind of garden season issues from the callers that called today. Um, but I thought in the last couple minutes to be able to, uh, Caleb, if you could let folks know, you mentioned your work with Mofka, but you are available for some assistance. So what would be the best way for folks to get a hold of you? Yeah, oftentimes uh, the best way is by email uh, if it's a, a pressing issue. Um, and my email address is my first initial and my last name. So it's C-G-O-O-S-S-E-N at mofka.org. Uh, another way that I try to get outreach out there is Mofka's newspaper, the the main organic farmer and gardener. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm taking over the pest reports that Eric Seidman has been doing. I'm, I'm a little late in getting my first one out. I'm working on it. Um, but if you go to the Mofka website, mofka.org slash publications slash pest hyphen reports, or just Google Mofka pest report, uh, you should be able to get there. Uh, at the bottom of that page is a link to sign up to receive the pest report by email, and that's just a monthly, bi-monthly, you know, every couple weeks maybe uh, email with, with tips on diseases that are coming up. Great. All right. Well, we are rolling into the end of uh, Common Ground Radio here today. I'd like to thank Amy Brown for engineering the show. I'd like to thank Cale Goosen for being here today while we talked about spring garden work. I'm your host, CJ Walk, and it looks like you should stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond coming right up. And thank you. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Collins Center for the Arts, presenting a chamber music concert featuring the Beijing Guitar 